Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your law podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V. And with me as always on this program is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. How you doing this? It's actually warming up. Is it warming up down there in, in the OC, Ozzy? It is. It it's definitely like getting a little warmer. Yeah, that was kind of out of nowhere. I felt like all last week I was I was bundled up, and then I wake up today, and it's it's a warm summer day. Yeah, I'm going to be completely honest. I've lived in this area for practically all my life, especially the past eight years. I've lived in the same spot, and it's usually late February is when we would normally have a torrential downpour in rain. For like two days, it would just do nothing but rain. That always happened in February, usually towards later, the latter half. But uh, it's been a while since I've seen a couple of days like that back to back. So, but that sounds like it'd be another topic for a different type of podcast. <laughs> well, we're talking about the big payoff, right? This is the big conclusion. Uh, we've been working towards this final topic of online defamation, and we spent what three episodes now i believe if not two or three i think it was three episodes now laying the foundation for tonight absolutely to play on that previous statement it'd be the online defamation being the big storm and the past three episodes were the winds (laughs) leading up to that storm now we're going to talk just lightly reference section 230 so if you'd like to familiarize yourself with 230 that was a previous episode as well as the anti-slap statute as well as the standard defamation, not necessarily online defamation. Now, when we started delving into the whole thing, we had three potential targets, at least when it came to online defamation. The first being the ISP, the internet service provider, or the website, and three, the person that makes the statement and posts it on the said website. Now, the ISP is the easiest one to check off the list because they fall under section 230. So that essentially makes them a newsstand or a magazine stand. They have no control over what's printed in these publications or in the case of online information would be whatever's posted on the website. You can't blame AT&T for what somebody posts on Facebook. That sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it it sounds ridiculous today. I think that if you look at the common law uh, ideas behind defamation where you can sue anyone that republishes you could make the argument but you know the courts have held that bookstores magazine stands the ones that are just providing this material to the public they can't be expected to read and understand everything that's on their newsstands and the ISPs being protected was based on the fact that ISPs historically played a larger role than just being the person that provided the internet to your house they oftentimes will also sold uh, the internet along with a package in which you would log into their service and then their service would host the bulletin boards and ho- host the different websites. That's why 230 specifically exempted the ISPs from liability, but it does make it very easy to eliminate them from the equation. Cox, AT&T, Verizon, Google internet service providers, or I think, is it Tesla or... Um, What's his name? Elon Musk, I think, is supposed to be uh, launching a, a satellite service provider. So those those people that actually allow you to access the internet, they can't be sued or held liable for any defamatory statement that is transmitted through their pipes, so to speak. Now, 
Next up, second target being the website, which needs to start with the important question being asked. Is the website hosting the remarks of third parties, or are they publishing the statement themselves? So in reference to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, versus like a CNN or Washington Post, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the social media websites, rather, are covered under Section 230, unlike the CNN or the Washington Post or Fox News or whatever, what have you. So this goes back to what we talked about, Section 230 previously. The website that is like the the Facebooks and the YouTubes that create a platform, a, a public forum, for people to log in and post their comments and their thoughts about issues that are of interest to them or, you know, pictures of their dinner, they would not be able to be sued for any statement that's posted by a third party that's defamatory. And that's different than the traditional defamation where if a magazine was to post a letter or some remarks that a, another person wrote and they were to publish that and send it off to third parties, they would, in most instances, be responsible for those remarks as defamation. But because Section 230 says that a website that simply are hosting the thoughts or the comments or the points of view of third parties are absolutely immune, even if they know the statement's defamatory, even if they're made aware of the defamatory statement and asked to remove that remark and refused to, they are still immune if those remarks are being posted and created by other people. Now, that doesn't apply to a website that is actually creating the content itself and putting it out there. So if a web page is writing a gossip column or it's a single person who's just using their website as a journal, those websites are not provided the Section 230 immunity because they're actually generating and making the communications versus creating a public space for other people to speak. But if that webpage is a news-gathering website, that term can be really broadly applied. Then we're at in the newspaper situation. And we know that newspapers are held to a different standard as other people. It's more like if these news content providers are like the magazines, the New York the actual New York Times or let's just say People magazine, and you have social media sites as basically the penny saver. Yeah. Which anybody can just chip in whatever and it just goes in the penny saver as an ad. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. So the penny saver is just republishing whatever anyone types up and sends to them and pays them to publish, whereas the New York Times is actually creating its content and putting it out there. In fact, New York Times and the LA Times and all these Washington Post, these newspapers actually do have a web presence and they do publish newsworthy articles on their websites. And so when the website is a news gathering website, they're held to the New York Times v. Sullivan standard, which says that if the website is involved in the in freedom of the press type conduct, that in order for them to be held liable under defamation, they have to show that the website acted with actual malice, which we looked at before, which means that the website either knew that the statement they published was false, or they acted with reckless disregard for the truth or falsity of that statement. 
if you go to a, another type of website, which isn't a news gathering website, isn't hosting comments from third parties, but generating their own remarks, then those websites are treated like a, a normal person. So those are the three categories of websites that you can look at and determine if they can be held liable for defamatory statements. If they're just hosting statements of a third party, they're immune. If it's a news gathering website, then they're not immune, but they're held to the higher standard of New York Times v. Sullivan, where you have to show that they acted with actual malice. And then if they're not a news gathering website, then it's like any other person who's on the internet making statements. So I guess that takes us to our third category. It, it actually does. Taking at two of that third category of the person making the statement on the website for that, we'll have three separate examples and match them with how they would be protected. Beginning with example A. A posts a statement on Twitter about B and says she was asked out by B, her superior, at work. And A was made uncomfortable about the ask and turned B down. A continues that she was retaliated against by B in that she was not promoted and advanced as a result of turning down B's request. A states that she stayed quiet out of fear of retaliation, then finished the post with hashtag times up and hashtag me too, etc. Now let's say B sues A for defamation. B admits that he asked A out on a date and she turned him down, but denies any negative impact on her career as a result. So there's no law that protects specifically people making statements on the internet, uh, even if it's on a, a Twitter website or a Facebook webpage. But here in California, we have the anti-slap statute. And while anti-slap was first created in California, it actually applies, I think last time I checked, it was nearing 30 different states. And so this law is expanding. So even if you don't live in California where the anti-slap statute applies, it would make sense before you decided to bring a defamation lawsuit based on statements that were posted on the internet for you to find out if the anti-slap statute applies in your jurisdiction. Now, applying anti-slap to the, this first example, since these comments are on a public website, we learned that the courts have held that shopping centers which overlook the public square are considered a public forum, and later that internet websites overtook the traditional town square and are similarly public forums. And the anti-slap statute would most likely be granted. First, the court would find that the statement is mostly true and that whether or not it negatively impacted A's career is likely, in most circumstances, a matter of opinion. Even if the court held it was not a matter of opinion, B would have to prove that the statement is demonstratively false, and that could be a hard feat. Yes, and if, in that sample, if, if A could actually bring coworkers and other individuals to sign declarations to say that she worked as hard, if not harder than anyone else, and should have been promoted. Those are the types of things that A could do to make it even more difficult for B to counter the fact that A was reasonable in believing that her promotion was due to her turning B down. B would argue, and this will be a common thread throughout the three examples that we're going to discuss, B will argue, well, this is not a matter of public concern. 
This is a private dispute between two individuals. And she, the poster in this situation, being upset that she wasn't promoted and blaming B for that lack of promotion due to her not being interested in her invitation to go out. However, the courts deal with these, what they call mixed issues all the time, where a statement could both involve a comment regarding a private situation or a situation that talks about a conflict between two people and how that is part of a larger discussion. And so here, I think that the court would definitely apply the anti-slap statute because the poster states that people should not stay quiet and they should speak out and then further put the hashtags times up and, and me too, which you know, everyone in, in who's been around for the last three years and, and the, our society knows what those hashtags mean. And so if somebody was searching on Twitter for uh, posts related to these matters of public concern, they could simply find this post by, by doing the hashtag search of Time's Up or Me Too, and they would find this. So the court would certainly say that even if this is both a remark concerning a private dispute, it's also a remark concerning a matter of public concern, which is workplace harassment, the Me Too, Time's Up movement, and speaking out about disparate treatment between people and the workplace, possibly gender discrimination. So all these things are matters of public concern, so the court would certainly apply the anti-slap statute. Now looking at the next example, this would be now A and B are now two different people. A posts a statement on Facebook stating that B, her ex-boyfriend, a minor local basketball player, abused her during the relationship. A states that the emotional abuse she suffered at the hands of B have ruined her life. A states that B should be shunned by his friends and others in the local basketball community. B then sues A for defamation. B claims that he was never abusive. He claims the couple have arguments like any normal couple, nothing more. And for this example, A would make the argument that B is a limited-purpose public figure in that being a local basketball player. And if the court agrees... B now has to show actual malice, and in this case, actual malice being defined as requiring knowledge that it is indeed false or a statement made with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So this is another example that I'm asked about quite a bit, where an ex-girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend goes on the internet and starts stating that they felt that they were treated a certain way during a relationship, and there's a lot of heat put on the person who's spoke about in the post, and then they contact me and they say they want to sue for defamation. The problem with these kind of remarks are that even if, in this example, the boyfriend completely denies that they were verbally abusive, that they did anything beyond what a normal argument looks like, the court's likely to find that this is a matter of opinion, where A thinks that an argument now and then between a couple is a normal type of interaction in a couple, the other person could believe that that is not normal and find that it emotionally damaged her and will affect her in every relationship going forward. So recall that defamation requires the person who's bringing the lawsuit to prove that the statement is false. And if you're going to be 
in a situation where you're defending against an anti-slap statute, the burden shifts to you immediately without the benefit of discovery, as we talked about in the previous episode, to demonstrate with admissible evidence that the statement made about you as the plaintiff is false. And so if it's an opinion, and we're talking about a pure opinion, not one thing that we should probably bring up, I don't think we talked about previously, is a lot of people will say, well, as long as I say it is my opinion that they can never be sued for defamation. And that's actually not true. While it is true that a pure opinion cannot be the subject of a defamation lawsuit, if I was to say, Ozzy, it's my opinion that you stole from your employer last week. Now, that would be a defamatory statement. It would be one that was published to a third party if I said it right here on our podcast, because I know at least one other person besides you and I listen, the statement would be false. And it's the type of statement that would do injury to your reputation. So if you were to sue me for defamation, I can't say, well, wait a minute. I put, it is my opinion, and I'm entitled to that opinion. The way the courts have dealt with this issue is they said, if you state something as an opinion, that would be injurious to someone's reputation, then that's a defamatory statement. Because an opinion would be more like, Ozzy, I think that uh, you're a terrible driver. That would not be something that's necessarily injurious to your reputation. And if you try to sue me for defamation, I could say, well, each person could have their own standard as to what a good driver is and a bad driver. But whether somebody stole something or not, that's a fact. You either did steal or you didn't steal. I'm not able to publish to a third party my opinion as to the matter and then hide behind the fact that it's just my opinion when you sue me because the statement is demonstratively false. So here, if somebody says this relationship was abusive and emotionally tortured me and therefore I'm not going to be the same going forward, the boyfriend can't say, well, that's false. You weren't emotionally tortured because no reasonable person would be emotionally tortured. The boyfriend may believe that, they may hold that opinion, but the other person in the relationship can hold the opinion also that the relationship wasn't normal and they will be affected by it. So this example demonstrates something a little different that, first of all, the basketball player, even though he's not a major celebrity, he can be a limited purpose public figure in the local basketball community, which requires him to prove the actual malice. Plus, if the type of statement that to him is a false statement may be something that the court would consider an opinion. And even if the poster described a particular incident, let's say that there was an argument after a basketball game and the basketball player was really frustrated because they didn't win the game and they got into an argument and he screamed and yelled and then got in the car and drove away and he thought it was perfectly normal. And then she says, you know, I felt that I was being threatened. My life was in danger. That may not be true. And it certainly may not be something that the basketball player meant to make the other person feel, but still wouldn't be false for the person who was on the receiving end of that to go on, on the internet and say, I felt like I was going to be murdered. Even if that did do damage to the reputation of the basketball player. Right. Now moving on to example number three. And this is just to make uh, websites feel included. Now let's say... <laughs> I knew a, you'd think that was funny. A, posts on MySpace. 
that B got an abortion and that is why their relationship failed, because he does not believe in abortion and B is a baby killer. B then sues for defamation. B admits that she got an abortion due to a medical necessity, but claims she broke up with A. So this is right out of the case that we looked at briefly last week, the Mayweather versus Jackson case. And the court took a really interesting view when they granted the anti-slap motion in this case. And they said, first of all, whether or not Jackson ended the relationship or Mayweather ended the relationship is not going to be part of the analysis of whether or not Jackson can prove that the statement was false. Because whether one person or the other person broke up with the other person isn't the type of false statement that would damage someone's reputation. If, in this example, it turns out that A was actually broken up with by B, B's not going to suffer injury because people believe that A actually broke up with B, if that makes sense. And I know using the letters may make it a little more confusing, but the fact is, is that the false statement has to be a statement that harms your reputation. Also, Ozzy, as you recall, one defense to defamation, the, the best defense to defamation, is that the fact stated is actually true. The court also pointed out in the Mayweather versus Jackson case that it doesn't matter that the statement is not completely true. What's important is that the statement is mostly true. Now, in Vogel v. Felice, 2005-127 Calat 4th, 1006, it was ruled that minor inaccuracies do not amount to falsity so long as, quote, the substance, the gist, the sting of the libelous charge be justified. Now, in that she obtained an abortion is true. The gist of the statement is true. The court here would not care about who ended the relationship because this is not the type of conduct that would damage someone's relationship. Defamation must harm your standing in the community. Perfect. That's exactly right. So here, whether or not the relationship was ended by A or B is not really the issue of concern. And even though that B may take issue with A calling her a baby killer because of the fact that she feels like the, the, the abortion was medically necessary, the fact remains that she did obtain an abortion. And if, you know, some people believe that even in the cases of medical necessity, abortions should not take place. And so the gist, the sting, the statement that really could have done harm to the reputation of B and, and as far as some people in the community are concerned, that's a true statement. And so because truth is always a defense, the court would grant an anti-slap motion. And, and going back to the issue of public concern, because we all know these are all statements made in a public forum, the court would look at the fact that whether or not someone should obtain an abortion or not, that is a matter that is clearly something that the public is often debating about. It's a matter that is of extreme interest to the public and to the community. And so even though this is a situation where two people are, in this case, I guess one person's on the internet talking about why they ended a relationship, what he's putting the statement out there for is to make a commentary as to how important it is for people not to engage in abortions. 
And so because of the fact that that's the overarching statement that the speaker is trying to make, the court would apply the anti-slap motion. So when we look at these three examples, and, you know, people want to throw some other fact patterns at us, and, you know, we're not going to get into people's specific situations, but, you know, we, maybe we can look at these on future episodes and look at them from, like, an academic standpoint as to if the anti-slap statute would protect them. But the reason why we looked at Section 230 and the reason why we looked at the anti-slap statute was because when you're commenting about something in a public forum that is of interest to the community, the courts have been very liberal in granting these anti-slap motions. Ozzy, how much did the court recently award the attorneys for Rachel Maddow when they granted the anti-slap motion? $250,000. That is why it matters. Because a judge could award the defendant upwards to $250,000 in attorney's fees for winning a simple motion because the plaintiff did not gauge their case right when they filed it and they believed that they would get past an anti-slap motion. Let's also talk about the websites. Let's say you sue Twitter or you sue Facebook or you sue MySpace. Not really, right? I don't know. I'm sure MySpace even allows public discourse still. But let's say you sue one of these web pages. They're going to invoke prong one of anti-slap by saying the remark was made in a public forum and it was a matter of public concern. Then they're going to be guaranteed to win the anti-slap motion because they don't have to get into truth or falsity. They don't have to get into whether or not there was damage to someone's reputation. They will apply the immunity for prong two of section 230 and be guaranteed to win the lawsuit, which means the court must grant the anti-slap motion. So if it's a situation where a website is publishing a third-party statement, all they have to show is that the statement is a statement that is either of the interest or the concern of the public to win an anti-slap motion. So it makes the lawsuits very dangerous if you add the website, because if they could imply one of these immunities, it's a guaranteed victory on the anti-slap statute. But even as to the speaker, almost any statement made online, unless it's on a webpage that's membership only, are going to be a public forum. And so if, they, if you could satisfy the public forum part of the first prong, all you have to do is show that the statement is a public concern. And yes, even if you win the anti-slap motion, the stakes involved in losing that are so risky. It makes me tell people, be very, very sure that you want to proceed in a defamation lawsuit and understand the risk that if a judge says that that statement is one of public concern and then decides that you haven't proven the falsity of the statement sufficient to beat the anti-slap motion, or if the statement is a statement that is mixed between protected and unprotected speech, which means part of it may be a a defamatory statement, but part of it is a non-defamatory opinion-like statement, they're still going to grant the anti-slap motion, and you're still going to be paying those attorney's fees. Definitely valuable information to have, because it can be a very fine line when it gets to that amount, and it's not a very fine line when it gets to someone's bank account when you're talking about a six-figure settlement there. Now, again, for Let me jump in real quick, Ozzy, and just real quick. I was in court Friday. And this wasn't my case, but I was waiting for my case to be called. And there was a case where a homeowner had sued a company that was 
providing materials to a contractor that was doing work on their home. And the material company put a lien on the home of the homeowners. And the homeowners sued the material company saying that because they didn't actually have a contract with the material company, the material company could not lien the home. And the material company brought an anti-slap statute. And the court granted it and awarded $17,000 in a case where the amount in controversy was less than five grand. And the judge was very sympathetic. He even told the plaintiff, I'm very sympathetic for your position. I just don't have the authority not to grant the motion. And if I grant the motion, I don't have the authority to not issue attorney's fees for the amount that was the amount of time that was spent reasonably to bring the motion. And the fact that somebody files a lien against someone home. That is protected activity under the anti-slap motion because what we talked about last week, one of the things that come into, come into play under anti-slap in addition to these public statements are these statements in a public forum concerning a matter of interest or a matter of public concern are statements protected by the litigation privilege. So those are statements that are made in court or in communications that are in some way related to court or further those types of proceedings. And the court has extended those all the way out to filing a lien against someone's home. So because a court proceeding or anything that furthers a court proceeding is protected under anti-slap, when this material company filed the lien against the homeowner's home, that was protected activity against anti-slap. And because, as I explained before, that even covers false statements or things that you're not legally allowed to do, even though they could show that the lien wasn't proper, suing them for emotional distress. There was three different causes of action. I don't know. One was emotional distress, and I don't remember what the other two were. But the court said it falls under anti-slap. It's protected by the litigation privilege, which means that even if it's a false or conduct that's not legal, you can't sue for it. And therefore, granted the anti-slap and awarded the defendant $17,000. And so I bring that example up simply because even when the judge thinks that the anti-slap statute shouldn't be applied in a particular situation, they're still required to follow the law. They're still required to apply the statute and they're still required to award the attorney's fees. That's a, not the extreme example of the $250,000 that were awarded in the NBC case, MSNBC case. But it shows you that even in a case where only a small amount of money was at issue. The court granted far more than that in attorney's fees. So that's some, that's fresh off. You mentioned last Friday this happened, that you witnessed this happen in court. And again, we do have previous episodes that delve further into detail when it comes to the anti-slap statute, as well as standard defamation in addition to Section 230. Now next week, as we do, this does conclude our online defamation series next week. We're going to be back with a new episode. So be sure to hit like, subscribe, wherever you're listening or enjoying to this podcast. In the meantime, you can visit the Facebook page, Your Law Podcast, as well as the Facebook page for the Law Office of Andre Verdun that you can find at facebook.com slash Law. In terms of email contact for the Office of Andre Verdun, you can reach out at office at Law. But if you have any questions that you'd like to be asked on the podcast and answered as well, you can email to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, yourlawpod at gmail.com. Andre, anything else you'd like to say before we head out for the week? 
wear a mask, stay safe. Someone told me uh, wearing a mask is uh, an act of love, and wearing two is double love. Well, I mean, the only thing I could think of because I grew up in this time is those double knit commercials, double your pleasure, double your fun, double your safety by double mask. I like mm. it. Nah, it doesn't really have that same jingle to it. It doesn't, and I'll way. tell you, I don't wear two masks, but you know, as long as you're wearing one, I think you're doing your part. Do what you can, ladies and gentlemen. He is California Attorney at Law, Andre Verdun, and I'm Ozzy V, and we'll see you next week right here on your Law Podcast. Podcast.